0: And turn with me to Matthew twenty six. Matthew chapter twenty six. And we'll be looking at verses fifty seven through sixty eight tonight, of this morning. Matthew chapter twenty six. And we'll be talking about the Son of God condemned. Let's read our text here this morning before we get into the message. Beginning in verse 57, you follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read, beginning at verse 57. And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him afar off unto the high priest's palace. And went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. But found none, yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. And at last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which that these witness witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him, others smote him with the palms of their hands saying prophesy unto us thou christ who is he that smote thee and we'll stop there this morning and uh, trust the lord will bless as we think about uh, this uh, trial of the lord jesus christ the uh, kind of the uh, first part of the uh, trial anyway jesus suffered on behalf of sinners, and I'm not telling you anything you've not heard many times for the most part, uh, and yet even in that statement, Jesus suffered on behalf of sen- sinners, you know sometimes we can just kind of gloss over because we're familiar with Christ's suffering, and we can fail to see the depth of his anguish so that we might be declared righteous before the, th- uh, the thrice holy God. Now, the gospel writers set forth the picture of Christ's suffering uh, that led to the cross. And let me just trace uh, some of these details so that we can get a better uh, grasp of the implications of this particular text this morning. Uh, First of all, Jesus had finished the Last Supper with his disciples and then led them toward the Mount of Olives. And crossing the uh, Kishon Brook, uh, still bloodied probably from the run over of the Passover sacrifices from the temple area, they made their way along the path to Gethsemane, an enclosed area with olive trees, fruit trees, and an olive press in the center. And having warned them that they were going to be offended of him that very night, uh, Christ left his uh, disciples took only Peter, James, and John to a secluded place of prayer, and he urged them to sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And then the Lord agonized before the Father as the depth of the consciousness of the divine wrath flooded his thinking. Uh, He prayed that the cup of wrath might pass, yet not insisting on his will, but submitting to the Father's will as he has for all eternity. And so there were 3 periods of prayer that took place. And as he returned each time to the 3 disciples, he found them sleeping, not watching in prayer. Number of months ago, we had a study on the thrice uh, uh trumpeted truths of God's word. And it's amazing how many times you have these threes here and there's some more threes here in our text this morning. Uh, that's a wonderful study, and if you missed it, uh, 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 that's uh, uh, something you need to get into and, and find out how many times things are are mentioned three times. But here, then we found the uh, that Judas, the betrayer, led a contingent of soldiers and religious zealots to a private this private garden, Gethsemane. And he had been there before many times. But now he entered and walked directly to Christ. He kissed him on the cheek and identified him as the one that they were supposed to arrest. And Jesus told him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? And the soldiers seized him. Peter drew his sword, you remember, and striking the slave of the high priest in defense of Christ. And our Lord called for an immediate halt to such efforts since all that took place followed divine decrees. And then it says, we read there in our last text last week, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And so that begins an incredible series of injustices toward the Son of God. And in this passage here before us, we see the Lord of glory dragged before the ecclesiastical court of the Jews, before Caiaphas, uh, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, and everybody who was among uh, anybody among the Jews was represented in this assembly of madness. The whole re- uh, religious world of the day, all who claim to reverence the word of God, Uh, They claimed to honor the law of God. They claimed to walk in the ways of God. They claimed to worship in the name of God. They were all represented here in a bloodthirsty religious mob. These men were not the religious kooks and crackpots but the leaders of the mainstream religion, both conservative and liberal, both orthodox and unorthodox, and all of them had come together now for the third time in one week to censor, or I guess you could say excommunicate the Lord of glory and condemn Him to death. They were determined to get rid of Christ and His gospel while maintaining their religious status quo. They wanted to keep their temple, they wanted to keep their priesthood, they wanted to keep their religious customs and the name of God. But they were determined to put an end to the influence of the Son of God and the gospel of His grace. Now I hope you haven't missed the the point this morning already. This is what I'm saying. This is what I want you to see. It's very clear throughout the scriptures. The religious world... The mainstream religious world, all of its branches, all of its denominations, is now and always has been opposed to Christ. You say, wow. All the religions of the world? Yep, they've been opposed to Christ. They've been opposed to his gospel. They've been opposed to his kingdom. Every religion in the world, acceptable in the religious world, except true Christianity. Every religious notion in the world is acceptable in the religious world except the gospel of God's free and sovereign grace in Christ. Every way of salvation promoted by the perverse imaginations of men is acceptable in the religious world except the declaration that Christ is the only way, the declaration that salvation is to be had only by the shedding of His blood for the satisfaction of divine justice, that righteousness can be obtained only by divine imputation, and that salvation is a gift and an operation of God's free, sovereign, effectual grace. There's only one way. But there are many people that would lead you to try to lead you to believe, hey, there's many ways. We're all getting going to the same place. We're just getting there a different way. No, don't don't believe that lie. There's only one way. And we have here in our text these religious leaders becoming a bloodthirsty religious mob. They want to do away with Christ. There's a lot of people around today that want to do away with Christ and Christianity, don't they? They want to take it out of our lives. They want to put it, put it aside. It's too convicting. So that's what we see here in our text. Now notice, first of all, the sacrifice bound. It says in verse 57, And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the, the scribes and the elders were assembled. Now, they didn't have handcuffs back in those days, but they took ropes and they tied him up. They bound him. In a way, it was only fitting that our Savior be brought before the high priest of the Jews at this time. The great day of atonement was at hand. The wondrous types of the Paschal Lamb, the mercy seat, the scapegoat, were all, all about to be fulfilled. And so before he is led forth to be crucified, the high priest, by the arrangement of providence, pronounces sin to be upon the head of the innocent Lamb of God. Now let me remind you of this. And I hope you will always remember that our Savior's sufferings were voluntarily endured. He who had been by, his, by just the mere word smitten, the band of soldiers who came to arrest him, According to John 18 and verse 6, was now bound and led away against his will. This too came to pass according to the purpose of God, that <coughs> the scriptures might be fulfilled. It says in Psalm 22: Our Savior cried, Many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. Later on it says, dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. Our blessed Savior was bound but as the sacrifices of old. Just as Isaac had been bound and put on the altar back in Genesis chapter 22. And all the sacrifices of the law were bound at the horns of the altar, Psalm 8, 118, 27. And the binding of all the sacrifices in the Old Testament typically pictured the sins and the iniquities of God's elect binding the Lord Jesus. Someone has observed, for as chains and fetters tie down the body, so sin and iniquity bend down the soul. And as our Savior cried as one whose soul was bound when he was uh, was restoring that which he had which he took not away. He said, O God, thou knowest my foolishness and my sins are not hid from thee. Innumerable evils have compassed me about. Mine iniquities have taken hold upon me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of mine head. Therefore, my heart faileth me. It would seem that the binding of our substitute was intended of God to set forth the binding of all the sins of his people to him when the Lord said, had laid on him the iniquity of us all, making him sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. But another observation concerning the binding of our sins to our Savior, and that is a matter of certainty, is a very, very precious thought to the soul of Every truly regenerated believer, that all the sins of his redeemed, without omission of a single infirmity or sin in thought or word or deed, were laid upon Christ, as the sacrifice was bound on the altar. And so, the high priest under Jewish the Jewish dispensation was commanded to, uh, on that great day uh, of atonement, to do just this. And Aaron tells us, shall lay his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man unto the wilderness, as Christ was led away when he was bound. When our blessed Savior was bound and led away... And then at last put to death as our sin-atoning sacrifice, He fulfilled all the typical or the pictures of the sacrifices of the law that foreshadowed and represented Him. See, And so He who was made sin for us put away all the sins of all His people by the sacrifice of Himself. We see our sacrifice was bound. Now the second thing we notice here is Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Now in our text we have we come to the arraignment of the Lord Jesus. I want you to notice some interesting things about this so-called judiciary proceedings. First, you notice the place of his arraignment. The place. Jesus, after Jesus is arrested, he's actually taken home. Our text doesn't tell us this, but another gospel uh, reveals this to us. He was taken to the home of Annas, the uh, the father-in-law of the high priest. And then he was taken to the home of the high priest, Caiaphas. According to history, the homes of these two men were actually connected by a courtyard. And while Caiaphas may have been the high priest, Annas was the real power, in Jerusalem. He was over the business of the temple. He was the person who oversaw the tables of the money changers. He was the man who hated Jesus for some very obvious reasons. They arranged for the trial of Jesus to be held in a private setting to conceal what they were doing from the people. They had it in the home of the high priest. That was the place. Secondly, we saw the particip- we see the participants in this arraignment. Caiaphas represents the very worst of lost, ungenerate religious leaders. One commentator tells us that his name means one that vomits at the mouth. That's pretty disgusting. Uh, how would you like your name to mean that? Well, that's what uh, apparently his name meant. Though he had all the proper outward credentials of a high priest... He obtained his office by appointment of man, the Roman governor, either as a result of bribery or some favor that was done for him. It wasn't by the appointment of God. And like most religious religious leaders who obtained their offices and positions by the appointment of man, Caiaphas was really a very pragmatic leader of the people he knew, at least in theory, certain uh, aspects of divine truth, but he was a very subtle politician. And when it was his advantage to do so, he would act very manly and speak truth in the face of others. And I do not know how much, if anything, he understood about what he was saying, but he certainly spoke the truth. Over in John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, we read there uh, the, the truth that he was given. I'll just uh, uh, share that with you in John chapter 11, in verse 47. He said this, and then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a a council and said, "What What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and the nation. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he shall gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. He was speaking the truth there but it was going to cost him his place, his position. And so they counseled together to put Christ to death. You know, a high office in a church is no indication that a man is a servant of God. You, could, you need to read your Bible with your eyes open. The chief agents of our Lord's crucifixion and death were the priests... The elders and the scribes of Israel, the leaders of their, their religion. These priests would trace their lineage all the way back to Aaron. They held highest, the highest offices of religion. They led the people in their acts of worship. They lived austere lives of devotion. At least they publicly appeared to live such lives. But these men were the murderers of the Son of God. So beware hold no man in high esteem because he is reputed to be a great preacher or religious leader the teaching of any man who comes in the name of god can must be tested by the standard of the scriptures i learned this many many years ago as a young man i would look up to godly preachers and i would say man that's he's a great preacher and who's going to replace him when he's gone, you know? I learned that you never hold a man too high in esteem because somewhere you're going to realize he's just a man. And he's a sinner, just like you and me. Now we're told here that the scribes and the elders were already assembled. The proceeding had been advanced, uh, planned in advance. All the people necessary were present. And I believe the term scribes and elders refers here to the Sanhedrin. It was comprised of 71 men presided over by the high priest. And they would be the Jewish equivalent of the Supreme Court. Jesus is arrested and immediately arraigned before the highest court of the land. And these men, who should have been doing everything in their power to be men of God, instead were doing everything in their power to keep men away from God. And so those are the participants. Then thirdly, the problems with this arraignment. The trial of Jesus was plagued by many legalities. Things that were just not right. The Sanhedrin was designed to save life, not take it away. Yet these men had gathered for the sole purpose of putting Jesus to death. This trial was also conducted at night. The law specified that any trials were to be held during the day. The accused were always allowed to be called witnesses in, his, uh, in defense. Jesus was not given the privilege of calling any witnesses. The Sanhedrin was to judge the case, not to prosecute it. In the trial of Jesus, they assumed both roles. And if any witnesses were found to have given false testimony before the Lord, they were to be given the same punishment being sought for the accused. Don't hear anything about that, do we? And if the death penalty was being sought, the Sanhedrin was required to observe a three-day waiting period of prayer and fasting before judgment was rendered. Jesus was tried, convicted, and dead before 24 hours had passed. The Sanhedrin could not condemn anyone to death on a unanimous vote. A unanimous vote for condemnation suggested that an element of mercy was missing. Yet Jesus was condemned by all. Trials were only to be held within the temple. It was illegal to bribe a witness to give false testimony. It was against the law to force a prisoner to testify against himself. It was against the law to use a prisoner's confession. So there are many, many errors here that could be pointed out, but these are enough to demonstrate the fact that Jesus did not receive a fair trial, but he was convicted by a kangaroo court that had made up its mind before the trial ever began. And so that brings us then to Peter and the Lord's enemies. Verse 58. But Peter followed him afar off under the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. I don't want to say more than is suggested here by this verse, but it, I believe this verse is placed here by divine inspiration to prepare us for that which is later going to be revealed about Peter's denial of the Lord Jesus. I want you to notice the phrase, Peter followed him. Peter followed him. After first forsaking, we had already read that all the disciples forsook him and fled. But here we read, Peter followed him. Peter alone is mentioned here because it's Peter who's being considered. But we must not be too severe in our judgment of Peter. It's been said, Peter's following Christ showed love to him. He was reluctant to leave him. His heart moved toward him. He wanted to know how it was going to go with him. What was going to become of him? But sadly, this is not all we're told. But you know, notice it says Peter followed him, but he followed him afar off. Matthew Henry observed some sparks of love and concern of his master were in his breast, and therefore he followed him, but fear and concern for his own safety prevailed, and therefore he followed him afar off. And so here we see the beginning of Peter's denial. For to follow him afar off is by little and little to go back from him. Now, I think we're told here also, he went in and sat with the servants. He went in not to speak for Christ, but he's going to screen himself. He's hoping not to be identified with Christ and his disciples. In fear and unbelief, this bold disciple was also playing the hypocrite. Foolishly and needlessly, he put himself in the way of temptation. He had no intention uh, when he came to the high priest's house of denying the Lord. But he puts himself in the path of danger by putting himself in the company of the Lord's enemies. It was Spurgeon who said, When a servant of Christ by his own choice sits with the servants of the wicked, sin and sorrow speedily follow." And the reason why Peter followed and went in was to gratify his own curiosity about the most sacred of all things, that is, the death of Christ. Look at that verse again at the end of the verse there, in verse 58, says, He went in and sat with the servants to what? To see the end. Peter went in simply to indulge his curiosity. He wanted to see what happened. He didn't want to miss it. He wanted to see what was taking place. He wanted to see how the Lord would be condemned and delivered up to die. Perhaps he wanted to see what he knew no one else would see. Whatever the case, his curiosity nearly destroyed him. And so let us be warned. The desire to satisfy curiosity may be very advantageous in a carnal way, but in spiritual matters, it can be, we can be brought to our ruin. I wonder this morning, are you following the Lord, but afar off? And I think that's the message that I see here in verse 58. Peter followed, yes, but it was afar off. Maybe just out of curiosity, not out of faithfulness. Yes, he may have loved him. He may have been concerned about the Lord, but he wasn't willing to. Take a stand for him. That brings us to the chief priests and their false witnesses. Now, in verses 59 through 62, we see there the false witnesses that that come. Many false witnesses came, yet found they none. And last came two false witnesses. Even though they were plotting the murder of the Lord of glory, these men were meticulous in their religious duties. They knew that the law required at least two witnesses for anyone to be convicted of a capital crime. And so before long, two were found who would pervert the Lord's word into an accusation of blasphemy. And though these two witnesses could not get their stories together, it sufficed to give the religious infidels a conscious, soothing grounds for murder. And you realize that falsehood and ridicule are Satan's favorite weapons this morning? The old serpent is a liar and the father of all lives, John eight forty four tells us. And throughout our Lord's earthly ministry, he was constantly accused of being an evil man doing wicked deeds. This is nothing new for him. He must not be surprised to find men and women who oppose the gospel of grace of God falsely accusing God's saints of, of wickedness. Do not believe the evil reports that reprobate men give God's saints. Many times gospel preachers in particular are the objects of scandalous gossip inspired by Satan. It's always been the case. It's the case now and it will continue to be until time will be no more. And I've never known any man to be used of God who was not the object of scandalous rumor at one time or another. More often than not, the rumors that are started are started by religious people pretending to seek the honor of God and promote the cause of righteousness. Don't be surprised when you attempt to serve God that you will find yourself falsely accused of evil. Do not be surprised when the faithful gospel preachers are accused of evil. Those who despise but cannot repudiate their doctrine will try to blacken their names. And that brings us to the closing verses of this passage here, the bloodthirsty religionists. It says here, Jesus held his peace in verse 63. And the high priest said to him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand, and coming in the clouds of heaven? And then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, we have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? And they answered and said, He is guilty of death. Now we see the Son of God enclosed by this assembly of the wicked here, is it? Prophesy is prophesied in psalm 22 verse 16 and when accused by his false witnesses he held his peace when he saw his enemies were de- determined to have his blood he choked their spite with silence remember isaiah 53 jesus held his peace because the scripture must be fulfilled isaiah 53 7 he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Caiaphas was infuriated by the Lord's composure and silence. Then here in verse 64, our Savior plainly declares himself to be the Christ, the Son of God. And he told this enraged mob that he would be seated upon the right hand of power, of omnipotence, and that they would see That is to say, it would be manifest to them, it would be shown to them. The right hand of power is the right hand of God. Being seated there signified His finished work. Being seated upon the throne of God implied that His work was accepted by God. And so our Savior here makes a claim of deity. And that's something the Jews clearly understood. Indeed, if Jesus of Nazareth was not God, he was guilty of blasphemy. He did not deserve to die. Then our Master gave a bold declaration of his second coming and the fact that these godless reprobates would see him again in judgment. Almost the last word spoken by our Lord before his crucifixion was about his second coming. We should never question it. Is Jesus coming again? He certainly is. And after this, then, a great pomp and pretense, the high priest contemptuously condemned our Redeemer to be crucified. He ripped his garments as he screamed blasphemy. He ripped his clothes in a pretense of righteous indignation, only to hide the malignity of his murderous heart. He denounced the Son of God as a blasphemer only to disguise his own blasphemous heart. Penalty for blasphemy was death by stoning, but our Lord had foretold that he would be crucified, and therefore, rather than stoning him on the spot, they spit on him, they beat him, they mocked him, and then they delivered him to the Romans to be crucified. All this the Son of God had done voluntarily to endure this suffering as our substitute. Christ was content to be spit upon to cleanse our faces from the filth of sin. He was content to be buffeted with fists and beaten with rods to free us from the mighty hand of God. And these scourges and scorpions of infernal fiends The poet writes, See how patient Jesus stands, insulted in his lowest case. Sinners bound his almighty hands and spit in their creator's face. What multitudes there are who daily repeat the crimes of bloodthirsty mob by their willful unbelief. People today may not know about God, they may not know about Jesus Christ, but many do. They've heard about the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet they spit in his face when they don't believe him. Unbelief is nothing less than what these elite, sophisticated, barbaric religionists did. It's spitting in the face of God. Can you think of anything more disgusting The Good Shepherd laid down His life for His sheep as a voluntary sacrifice and a sin offering. He did it according to the will and the purpose of Almighty God. and All that was done to our Savior was done according to the purpose of God. It was beforehand revealed in the Old Testament. These men knew that. After these things, after suffering the wrath of men, our Savior yet had to endure the wrath of God. To save us. That he did too, with voluntarily endured for us as our substitute. The day shall soon come when the Lord of glory will respond to the challenge of mockery in verse 68, where it says, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? I just would remind you that Jesus suffered that night. He suffered for you and for me. He went through this so you might be saved and you might not—you might miss hell when you de- die. And here's the question you must answer. Since the Bible says Jesus died for your sins and since the Bible says that he is the only way to God, have you ever trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Have you been born again? If you've never been saved, and when we give the invitation, today would be the day to come and to receive him as your Savior. For those of you that are saved, are you guilty of abusing your king? Does your life spit in his face? Do the things you do and say, and say, uh, do they sting him with brutal blows to his face? If you're a Christian, walk is not what it should be then you need to get before God as well. Repent of your sins and get back in line with him. Whatever the need is, he's already met that need. Whatever the burden is, he has the answer. Come to him today while there's time. Let's bow in prayer.